I'm Kevin Purcell, the pastor of High Peak Baptist Church, and this is Sermons at High Peak. And as we think about what's been going on uh, recently, over the last year or so, that's affected so much the life of the church, it's good to know that people um, love the Lord, are committed to their faith, and want to serve Him. And I'm looking forward to the coming year. I think that something that's happened in the life of church in general is, number one, we've really found commitment. Now, maybe it's not as many people as we'd hoped we'd find it from, but we have. And I don't define commitment as attending church. After all, think about the church. For example, there's a picture I want Poncho to put up. That is our church. It's an old picture. I was uh, searching for pictures of our church that I could find real quickly this morning because honestly I forgot to put it in the presentation. And I found that one and I thought, that doesn't seem like one I've taken. I wonder where that came from. But that looks like an, an old photo of our church, right? See, some of you are too smart and you knew I was trying to trap you there. That's not a picture of our church. I don't see our church at all. I see a building where our church comes together in order to worship Jesus Christ. We are the church. And we repeat this over and over again, and yet we still fall into the trap of thinking of this building as our church. You are the church. And if you're not committed to the church, the people, but you're committed to attending a building or not attending a building because you've gotten real comfortable over the last year not having to show up. It's fun to sit in your underwear or sit in your pajamas and watch church at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Now, I know that's not why everybody isn't here, but I think some people, that's why they're not here. If you think of church as coming to this place, then you are sadly mistaken. And the kind of things that we see happening to church buildings, I think are going to be happening more and more in the coming decades in this country. For example, I know of a church building in Lexington, Kentucky, right near where I went to college in Georgetown, 12 miles south. Most of you know more about Lexington than you knew about the city of Georgetown. There's a place that I used to go, a church that I used, a church building that I used to like to go. I would take dates there. You say, what? Take dates to a church? Yeah, that's because they transformed this church building into a bar and a pizza restaurant. There you can even see the stained glass window and there is the bar right where the baptistry and the podium used to be. And that's happening more and more. You go into New England and you see church buildings transformed into meeting halls, bars, restaurants, hotels, houses, because the church has become weak. The place where our nation founded itself on Judeo-Christian principles is now the most secular part of our country, New England. But in order to be the church, we have to have something at the heart of our existence. And that's what I want us to think about this morning as we look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. And if you're at home, open up your Bibles. If you're here, open up your Bibles or at either one, turn it on. If you use a tablet or a phone as your Bible, that's fine. 
But open it up to Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Now this is a passage, just a few short verses earlier. Paul said this, he said, To live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. If you were here uh, recently, we had a funeral service, uh, sadly. And uh, the pastor from Southport who came up and did the graveside service used this scripture as a funeral text. And I never really have thought about this as a funeral text. But you know, to live is Christ. But to die is even better. But we've got a work to do. We've got a purpose for living. And this passage talks just a little bit about that. Paul is challenging the church at Philippi to live for Jesus in a lifestyle of joy. And so let's look at verse 27 and 28. And if you have your Bibles, would you please stand in honor of reading God's word with me? He says, just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your circumstances. And I'm just reading the first half of verse 21, so you may be seated. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word and hopefully also the preaching of his word. Now the first part of this verse talks about living your life. Live your life, he says. You know, that's what we all do. We just try to live our life day to day, day by day. And when he says this, he's saying live your life. He's not just talking about just ordinary, go through the motions and don't really think about stuff. He's saying really live it. Live your life to the fullest. Jesus said, I've come that you can have an abundant life. And so when we try to live our life, the natural impulse of most healthy, emotionally well-adjusted people is they want to live their life as part of something bigger than themselves. Think about this as citizens of the United States. You know, hopefully we have a, a sense of patriotism as we love our country, just as people who live in the United Kingdom or Brazil, you know, they may love their country. Maybe they're very proud of being uh, citizens of their nation. I think we as a country used to have a whole lot more of that than we do now, but we still are very patriotic as a people for the most part. Our forefathers said we're going to come together and live together with one same kind of mentality, this mentality of freedom based on Judeo-Christian principles. What does that mean, Judeo-Christian? Well, if you look at the Bible, you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Testament is judeo Judea was the nation of the Jews. So it's basically Jewish and Christian ideals. The Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the ways that we can apply that. Now, our, our nation today is very fragmented. It's very divided. Probably more so than I've ever seen in my lifetime. I don't think we've been as divided in our nation's history, except for during the time leading up to and after the Civil War. We are incredibly divided. Sadly, the same is true of the church. The church is incredibly divided. We're divided over uh, 
theological ideas. We're divided over practical ideas of how to live out and be the church. Uh, individual churches are divided. So many times there's fighting inside the church. And this whole idea of they will know you by your love is, is something, well, then they surely don't know us. We must be hiding out inside our church buildings as Christians, fighting with, with each other. They don't know Jesus at all through the way we treat one another. Well, maybe it's not a church. Maybe one church is incredibly united in their hatred for this other church. Or maybe one denomination is incredibly united in their disgust over the theological ideas of another denomination. But we're so divided. But as a nation, remember the patriotism we, patriotism we had when we would go and, and we would wave the American flag patriotically and with great joy and excitement. You know, maybe we as Christian churches ought to also wave the Christian flag. Because it's the Christian flag that unites us. It's a symbol, rather, of the, the Word of God and the, the Christian faith and how Jesus died for our sins and the gospel unites us. So we come together. And so what he's talking about in this passage, there's two things that I think he means when it says live your life as a Christian, as a believer. Number one, living for Jesus means teamwork. It means teamwork. You can't do it alone. Too many Christians think they can. They think they can be a Lone Ranger Christian. But you know, the Lone Ranger had Tonto. He didn't do it alone. <laughs> all the great superheroes all seem to have a sidekick that they need to help them through. Uh, you know, if you watch any of the great superhero movies lately, it seems like now more and more of the movies, they're bringing all the superheroes together in films. And it's this same attitude. You and I need one another. The superheroes of the Christian faith are the people who humbly work together, supporting each other, loving each other. And our superpower is that we can call down the power of God with just a few short phrases. I'm talking about our prayer life. America was proud on May the 1st, 2011 when they brought to justice the mastermind of the 9-11 attack. It was almost 10 years after the fact. When the Navy SEALs got together and worked with the CIA and together went into Pakistan, into a compound, and they took down Osama bin Laden. A few days later, the Wall Street Journal had an article that they had put out where they were highlighting the Navy SEALs, the work that they do. And they said this, one quality makes them successful. Can you guess what that one quality is? They went on to talk about the rigors of training, how it began from day one of their SEAL team training. The, some of the hardest training in the military. There are other special forces that maybe train as hard, but probably no one else trains harder than them. And they take the best of the best. You know, Barb's brother, a very bright and intelligent man, but he was not able to get into the Navy SEALs in spite of the fact that he was in very good physical condition and was an intelligently bright man, but he wanted to get in and he just missed the test by a few points and he wasn't able to get in. So the question they talked about in that article is what kind of man makes it through the training in the Navy SEALs? Someone that they had interviewed said that I know who's not going to make it. He said that weightlifting meathead, 
he's not going to make it through the training. He's too arrogant. He's too proud. He thinks that his strength is measured in the size of his biceps instead of in the worth of his character. He also talked about the look-at-me athlete, you know, the one who spikes it in the end zone in the football team, and it's all about him as if the other ten guys on the team, along with the coach and the trainers and the backups who helped him, didn't do a thing. It was all him. Well, how in the world did that ball suddenly fly into your hands? How did it get there? Had to be someone throw it to you. And someone else pumped up that ball in order for it to be usable. But the me first, look at me athlete, he said they don't usually make it through. And he said there are other people who fail to focus on the right attitudes and the right outcome. They focus on their success, not the team's success. He went on to say there's some people who often don't look like they're going to make it on the SEAL teams, but strangely enough, they often do. It's the one who puked on that first run. The guy who could barely do one pull-up, let alone all the pull-ups that they were supposed to do. The guy who was skinny, who was maybe a little short. His uh, teeth chattered while they had to swim out in the ocean for a long period of time. And the ones who looked visibly afraid. He said these guys often were able to overcome their weaknesses because, one thing, they saw that they survived as a team. It was SEAL team not seal individual. The article quoted a guy named Eric Greitens. He said, even in the great pain faced with the test of their lives, they had the ability to step outside their own pain, put aside their own fear and ask, how can I help the guy next to me? They had more than the fist of courage and physical strength. They also had the heart large enough to think about others, to dedicate themselves to a higher purpose. And that's what we're talking about. Churches, we have to live together and work together in teamwork. Living for Jesus means living and working as part of a team. You can't go it alone. Paul mentions three things in this passage that is needed in order for us to work together. Number one, we have to have the attitude that we will not go it alone. That we work, he said literally, side by side. Can you go out and worship all your, by yourself out in nature? Yeah, you can, to a degree. Can you worship all by yourself in your living room with no one else around? Sure, a little bit, to a degree. But I know this, that I have seen over the years people who have tried to go it alone after being part of the church, and usually within weeks, months, or at longest years, they have totally left the faith after they have left the church. It doesn't last long on your own. Some people say, well, I'll just watch that TV preacher or that Facebook streaming preacher now. Well, let me ask you this. Is that famous TV preacher going to do your funeral when you die? Or will he come visit you when someone in your family is dead? Do the members of your church answer your calls or emails or text messages asking for prayer? Not usually. If you get into financial strength, will his church take up a love offering for you? That big TV mega church pastor? Will they take care of your children when you have to rush out in an emergency? Probably not. Do they keep you accountable for your faith and try to live alongside you, supporting you, being an example to you, befriending you? Not usually. You and I, we can't go it alone. We need the church 
We need to come together as a church and work together in teamwork. So don't try to do it alone. He also says that we need to be united in effort. He uses this phrase, one spirit with one mind. You see that there in verse 27. One spirit with one mind. Who unites the church? The Holy Spirit does. When you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you asked him to forgive you for your sins because you knew you were a sinner, you had to do that in order to become a Christian. You had to admit that you were a sinner. You had to believe Jesus died for you and rose again. You had to confess your sins and commit yourself to live for him. And when you did that, the Holy Spirit came upon you. Almost instantly, about the same moment you were probably praying that prayer, the Holy Spirit began to indwell you and fill you up. How does that work? I don't know. It's a miracle. But I know this, you can sense him. You can tell that he's there. The, the way you can tell is you start reading God's word and after prayer, he starts to open up the ideas to you that were before very confusing. He brings you together with other believers and you start uh, having words to say to encourage people when you didn't have them before. You have some wisdom that maybe you never really had before. The Holy Spirit starts to guide you. But you know what else the Holy Spirit does? He brings you together. So that when you meet another Christian, have you ever had this experience where you meet a brand new person? You've never met them before. And you walk up and you know maybe you shake their hand pre-COVID or now you know the old... Uh, elbow bump or something like that or the wave that we do today. But when you do that and you're in their presence and you just sort of, sort of know, you can just sort of sense that something's different about that person. If you've ever experienced that, I have, it's your Holy, the Holy Spirit in you. There's only one Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit in you drawing you to that person who also is indwelled by that same Holy Spirit. Now, maybe you've never experienced that. doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But what I want you to know is that that does happen, and it's happened to me. They're united in one effort, and they have the mind of Christ. What's that mean? It's not like someone did a transplant, you know, they sawed open Jesus' skull and popped it out and put it in you. That's ridiculous. You know, wouldn't it be great if you could... You're trying to share somebody with something and you've got a port on the back of your head and they've got a port on the back of their head and you just kind of plug a USB cable in and each one of you downloads to each other. Be a lot quicker, a lot more efficient. It doesn't work that way. But I know this, that when you have the mind of Christ, what does that mean? It means you've been studying God's word. The Holy Spirit has been helping you understand what it means and it begins to change your personality into more like Christ. And when you and I both have the mind of Christ, there's unity as we come together. And then finally, he said, you're, we're united in purpose. He said, for the faith of the gospel. The gospel message, that message that Jesus dies for our sins. He sacrificed himself in order for us to live for him. And when we all do it, we live by faith and we live for the faith. So it's for the faith of the gospel. We all have the same purpose. We have a common, united purpose. A common vision, really. Our vision is that we all think about who is that person that we know that we're not sure whether they have faith in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know that they have faith in Jesus Christ, it's from one of two things. Either they're not a Christian or they're not a faithful Christian. If someone was a faithful Christian and you had known them long enough, you'd know that they were a believer. I can remember uh, years past, I, I've done funerals, and in the family that I did a funeral, I was doing it for someone who really wasn't part of the church that much. 
And I'd always ask, whenever I do a funeral, if I don't know the person, I ask, did this person have faith in Jesus Christ? And every so often, not very often, but every so often, their spouse or their children or their brother or sister, somebody, I ask that question and they say, hmm, I just don't know. Now let me tell you something. If you get to the end of your life and your own family members don't know about your faith in Jesus Christ, then you've got something wrong with your faith in Jesus Christ. There's a problem there. If your own family, the people who seem to know you the most, if they don't know whether you're a Christian or not, you're not doing it right. I'm not doing it right if that was my case. We are not doing it right if our own family doesn't know. If you're here today and you say, well, I don't know anything about how my spouse or my mom or my brother or sister, my aunt, my cousin, uh, how they got to become a Christian, ask them today. Give them a call. Somehow get it into the conversation. Hey, tell me your testimony. You know, did, have you ever become a Christian? I just would like to know because I'm a Christian and that's the most important relationship in my life. So I'd like to know you. Did you ever come to faith in Jesus Christ? If you don't know, ask them that question. Number one, you'll either get some assurance from them. Number two, you might convict them of the need to recommit their life in Christ because how shameful it is if someone in your own family doesn't know that you're a believer. And number three, if they're not, you'll get a chance to witness to them and tell them about Jesus Christ. And that's what it's all about. I dare say, when someone has died, suddenly, without warning... If there's a Christian that knows that person, their thought is probably this. I wish that I had talked to them before two or three or a week ago. I wish that I had asked them about their faith in Jesus before. We have a purpose, a united purpose, and that is to see more people come to know Jesus Christ. And if we work together, we can do great things. I always like to tell this story about when I was a youth minister. It was uh, my first church. Back in the summer of 1988, and I took our youth group down to Sawyer Point, which is a park right along the Ohio River in Cincinnati. And uh, I was youth pastor in Falmouth, not Falmouth, uh, Fort Thomas, Kentucky, right across the river. And they had just opened up Sawyer Point. Sawyer Point's this neat place. You know, you've ever heard the phrase, when pigs fly? Well, you walk in the entrance, and it's got pigs up on the the thing, and they say they're the flying pigs, and so the pigs do fly in Cincinnati. <laughs> and you go in there, and it's got all this stuff. A bunch of the kids like to play tennis, and so we played tennis, and then they've got like a, a little uh, model of the Ohio River. You can actually walk in the water. It's kind of cool. Well, we went down there. One of the adult chaperones drove the church van, and then I drove my car, which was an old 74 VW Rabbit. Piece of junk, terrible car. I only had it four year, four months, rather. Um, and I got back to the van late because I was meeting some of the group inside the park and I told another group, you guys go on out to the van. We don't want to lose you. Go out to the van. When I got out there, guess what was gone? My ugly, beat up, old 74 VW Rabbit whose literal floorboards had rusted away so that if you drove it in the rain, the person in the back seat behind the driver got wet. It was gone. And I'm like, who in the world would steal a 1974 beat up old rabbit and doesn't even have floorboards? And by the way, the parking brake didn't work. You had to jump out and quickly put bricks 
in between the wheels to keep it from rolling up or down hills. Who would steal that thing? Well, it turns out my youth guys did. They had about eight guys in that youth group who were all pretty big and muscular. They literally picked up my beat-up old 1974 VW Rabbit that was ugly, chipping paint brown, and they took it and brought it around and hid it behind our church van. And I couldn't believe it. I was mad, but I was also really impressed, and so I didn't really say much after that. I was also a little bit scared, because if they can do that to my VW, what could they do to me anyway? But I tell you that story because of this. They worked together for a common goal, and they achieved something that many of us didn't think possible. And you know, God has said, go and make disciples of every people group, of every language, of every nation around the world. Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Board estimates there are still over 100 people groups. These are groups that have their own culture and language that have still yet to receive a gospel witness for Jesus Christ. If they have, we don't know about it. And it's our job to reach them somehow, some way. Our church is very faithful in giving. Maybe we ought to do some going. I hope you'll take the opportunity to go. I don't know of a mission trip right away that's going overseas, but I know this, this summer, if you want, you can go to Cincinnati. That's right, and see the flying pigs at Sawyer Point. We've got a mission trip scheduled for July 10th to the 17th, and I would love to see you go. That's our purpose, to be united and to come together to share the gospel around the world and even foreign countries like Cincinnati, Ohio. But you know what? Living for Jesus isn't just teamwork. It also means confidence. Leadership expert Jack Gropel was asked to work with a group of professional football players in Florida. These were NFL linemen. And he told them, as part of his training, that they were to run around the field, and at the other end of the field, there's a ribbon, a ribbon, one for each of them, and they're to get the ribbon from a post at the other end and bring it back. And, of course, whoever wins, you know, they get some kind of prize. Well, they told the group to watch out because there's a wild boar in a swamp at the other end of the field. So when you get down there, you better grab that ribbon and get back here quick. Well, as the guys would come around the edge of the field, there was a cameraman hiding there, and he was filming them. And there was someone with him making strange sounds like a wild boar. And so the players, while they're running and they're being filmed, they'd suddenly hear these sounds of this wild boar, and they'd freak out. And some of them would just dart across the field. They didn't even go around like they were supposed to. Many of them totally ignored the ribbon. They just hightailed it out of there. These 320, 350-pound NFL linemen who were supposed to be the epitome of strength, they got scared just because of a sound, just because of a noise. Living for Jesus means confidence. And you know what? You might face a situation where you're going to face real fear. It may not be fear for your life. It might be fear for your character, fear over your public persona. People are going to think less of you. People are going to be ashamed of you. People are going to look down on you. In our, to, our world today, they might cancel you. You know, the term that they're using now to embarrass people who don't believe what the, the leftist ideology people believe. And so they say, well, we're going to get rid of you so you can't get a job. There might be a lot of reasons that you're afraid. You're afraid because you might catch a disease. 
But you know what? We don't have to live in fear. The Bible says we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of love and confidence and a sound mind. It says that in 1st or 2nd Timothy. I didn't plan to quote it, so I don't remember exactly the passage right now. The difference is this. If you know the fearful situations are coming, you can be prepared. And you can ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen you, to empower you, to give you courage so that you can live your life so that you can share the gospel with other people. So you can live out the faith of Jesus Christ. You can live it out in such a way that you're confident knowing that even if the people of this world hate you for your faith, you have one who's looking down on you. He will reward you for your faith. Now real quickly, you look at verse 28, where it says, not being frightened by, in any way by your opponents. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents. Living for Jesus with confidence, not being frightened. That's what I'm talking about here. But when you live a life of confidence, not being frightened, you're not frightened in any way. You say, well, that's easy for you to say. But I've got some really difficult circumstances in my life. I know you do. The key here is, Don't let the fear overcome you. Live it consistently. There's confidence, and then there is consistency. Living with confidence leads to living it out consistently. If I have confidence, then I will live consistently the life Christ has called me to lead. And then finally, he says, not being frightened in any way or by your opponents. Who are your opponents? Well, sometimes it feels like the person next door, the person we go to work with, the person who lives in the same house with us. Ultimately, our real opponent is Satan. But sometimes people allow Satan to use them to oppose you. But if you don't take your eyes off Jesus, then you can live in confidence and you can have concentration. You'll have the confidence to do it consistently because you're concentrating on Jesus Christ. You're concentrating on the goal that he has given us. You're concentrating on the reward that he has promised us. You know, I think about the story of Peter walking on the water. This is a wonderful illustration for consistent, confident concentration on the right thing. You know the story. Jesus had come out to them and started walking on the water. It was in the middle of a storm and the disciples were in the boat And it was the Sea of Galilee. And these storms would just suddenly come up on the sea without a moment's notice. They didn't have really good weatherman like we do. Do we? I don't know. Sometimes. No, we've got a lot better than they did because they didn't have anything. And so these storms would just suddenly come up. And one came up. And Jesus had said to them, Jesus had started walking to them. And they said, who is that? That's Jesus. And Peter said, Lord, if it's you, then call me out of the boat and and come to you on the water. And so Jesus did it. And Peter climbed out of the boat. Now, i got to tell you something. Peter gets a bad rap in this story. But I'm pretty impressed. He got out of the boat in the first place. I don't think I would have done that. How many of you would have taken the first step out of the boat? I would have said, hey, Jesus, if it's really you, you come on over here. We'd love for you to get in this boat. Not, I'm getting out with you. So Peter, Peter had some pretty important faith. But he made one little mistake. 
one thing that caused him to lose his faith. And what was it? He took his eyes off Jesus and he noticed the danger. And he had more concern over the danger than he did have confidence in what Jesus could do. And in that one little moment, he lost his confidence. Now, here's another way that he gets a bad rap. <laughs> he lost his confidence. He started to sink. And people criticize him for that. But you know what he did when that happened? He turned his gaze back to Christ and said, Lord, help me. When you find yourself sinking, don't despair because you find yourself sinking. Instead, just turn back to Jesus. And he is gracious, kind, and loving. And he'll say, come on, I'll pick you up. Amen. You don't have to worry. I'll pick you up. Trust in him. Believe in him. That confidence leads to a consistent life because you concentrate on following Christ. Let me ask you this question. When does a Burger King value meal become a feast? Some of you say, never. Others of you say, hmm, about 12.30 today. It probably will become my feast, maybe. Well, Chris is a manager at a nursery uh, on Long Island. I mean like a farm, not, you know, taking care of babies. He has a bunch of Hispanic migrant workers who work for him. He's got 28 employees, most of whom are not the most uh, wealthy Hispanic migrant workers. And he tries to show them the love of Christ. He tries to help them out. He gives them orders and he talks to them. When they make mistakes, he's careful to uh, help them when they, when they fail to come back and you know, do the right thing. At the end of the day, the group says, Gracias Dios por una día más, meaning thank God for another day. He's having an impact on these men. One week there was this terrible storm and they couldn't come to work. He lost a lot of the plants at his nursery, at least the ones that were unprotected and outside. And so he was kind of in dire straits a little bit, but he knew they were worse off because they had lost a work week and they couldn't afford that. So he did what he could to help each one of them out. But one of the things he did is the next day they came back to work, he bought each one of them a Burger King value meal, knowing that at least that way they'd get something to eat that day. It wasn't a big sacrifice for him, but for them it meant a lot. And so the next day, guess what happened? Showing their love and appreciation for him and all that he had done for him, they pooled their money together and bought him a Burger King value meal for $8. You see, these workers didn't have an awful lot of money, especially at that moment, but they showed their appreciation to this man who had done so much for them. And they sacrificially gave to show him their love and appreciation. I love that story because it shows you what can happen when people are loved and therefore inspired to love others. He loved them and then they loved him. They felt like they owed him a debt of gratitude and they didn't give him much because they didn't have much, but they gave him what they had. You know, what kind of gift can you and I give God that he needs from us? Is there a gift that God needs? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's already living in perfect harmony with himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
So what can I give God that he needs? Nothing. There's nothing you and I can give him that he really needs. But if we will work together as a team, confident in the call that he has given us because he loves us, and we choose to give to him, just like it says in 2 Corinthians 9-7, God loves a cheerful giver. You've been listening to Sermons at High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, pastor of High Peak Baptist Church. Thanks for joining us. If you heard something that inspired you, challenged you, or encouraged you, please let me know. You can reach me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com. We're also on Facebook at High Peak Church. Thanks for listening. Thank you.